We're continuing our series today on the tabernacle. This will be message number three. If you don't have the book, The Encountering God, Encountering God, that I wrote quite some time ago on the tabernacle, then get it after the service is over. You'll be able to study these messages even at home in your private time of study. You'll have a better and a clearer understanding as we go along through these messages on the tabernacle. We're talking today on the bronze altar. Would you say that after me, please? The bronze altar. In Exodus chapter 29, verse 38, we will start reading. The Lord is speaking. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs of the first year, day by day continually. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. With one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil. One-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and you shall offer it with the grain offering and the drink offering, as in the morning for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire unto the Lord. This, you, this shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord where I will meet you and speak with you. There will I meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. A few Sundays ago, we talked about relationships, and especially our relationship with God. We said that it is necessary for you to understand yourself and that you must also understand the person with whom you are to relate. We discussed God's motive, that God loves us, and God's objective, that he wants to enjoy us. God's nature, that he is holy, and that he is jealous, but that he is also merciful. We discussed God's promises that he would bountifully bless those who sincerely sought to please him. So we arrived at an adequate, practical, working understanding of God so that we can better understand what he is like and what our God expects of us. But we did not spend enough time on that Sunday morning understanding what we are like and what some of the factors affecting our ability or our inability to properly relate to God and to life and one another. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. God brought order out of chaos. The almighty, eternal God in his wisdom created and synchronized this vast universe in which we live. Upon the earth he created various forms of plant and animal life. And as the finale to the great drama of creation, God brought into existence a being made in his own image, man. And this man and the woman that God gave to man were esteemed and cherished above all that God had created on the earth. Man was a living soul, had the capacity to communicate with God and to worship God. The book of Genesis implies that there was no death, no physical suffering. The universe was a vast symphony of harmony and peace, and man was created in innocence and was privileged to live in communion and in harmony and fellowship with Almighty God. Because God loved man, God made man a free moral being. Man had the ability to make choices regarding his moral and his spiritual behavior. And though God had created man in purity and in righteousness, man had to make his own choice as to whether he would maintain that purity and maintain that righteousness. God had forbidden them of only one thing in all of creation, the existence of alternatives is absolutely necessary if one is to be a free moral being. Adam not only had to be free to do good, Adam had to be free to do evil if he chose to. Otherwise, he would not have been free at all. God prohibited the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and informed man that the consequences of disobedience would be death. 1 John 3 and 4 tells us that sin is a transgression of our disobedience to the law or the commands of God. And it was not long before the tempter, Satan, presented himself to Adam and Eve. He said to the woman, God has lied about the tree of knowledge of good and of evil. The fruit of the tree will make you like God's. It will not harm you. It will help you. Satan is still using the same strategy today. He's doing the same thing and telling the same lie about God today. But the prospect of being gods was too much for Adam and Eve, and they disobeyed God, their creator. We don't know the precise dynamics of the events and consequences that resulted from Adam's disobedience, we can tell whether there, we cannot tell whether there was something about the essence of the fruit or some other causal factor, but the undeniable fact is that Adam disobeyed God and that that disobedience had a cosmic effect not only upon men but upon the whole universe. That instant of disobedience was the saddest and most tragic moment in all of history. It would be impossible to chart the cosmic effects of sin. 
Sin is the discordant note in the symphony of the universe. Sin is the ugly blemish in God's picture of what the world ought to be. Sin is the disease that has twisted man who was made in the image of God into a blasphemous satire of what God would have man to be. Sin has emblazoned itself on the nature of the universe. Sin is a direct rebellion against God. Sin is a deliberate transgression of the law of God, and it is, as they were, a slap in the very face of Almighty God. So sin could not and cannot go unnoticed. It must be dealt with. Adam's sin had a legal and a hereditary effect on all of mankind. Adam was a legal representative of mankind. And when he, as the legal representative of men, disobeyed God and separated himself from God, then all humanity was separated from God and judged to be disobedient to the law of God. In Adam, all sin. <clears throat> it is like an heir who inherits an already encumbered in debt estate and proceeds to encumber the state, the estate, even more with additional debt. Not only did we have a legal relationship to Adam, we also had an hereditary relationship to Adam. Adam's nature was infected by sin, and he became wicked and depraved, and he passed that sin and depravity on to every human being born on the face of the earth. Sin is a dread disease which is relayed from father to son and mother to daughter. All men are sinners, not only because Adam sinned, but because they are sinners by nature and infected with the disease of sin. Every man has committed acts and emanated emotions which are an affront to the holiness and righteousness of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I don't care how good you think you are. <clears throat> I don't care how much you think you know. I don't care how many people you have. Until God comes in your life, you are a sinner by nature. Amen. Amen. History has proven that man is exactly what the Bible says he is, a sinner. All you have to do is look out across the world. See the murder, see the crime, see the death, see the trouble, see the distress. In Romans chapter 1, Paul describes men. He charges them with idolatry, sexual perversion, unrighteousness, vile affections, wickedness, fornication, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, deceit, opposition to God. Listen, to these and to many other sins, mankind has got to proclaim guilty and plead guilty as charged. Come on, if you're honest, hold up your hand and say guilty as charged. And because of sinfulness, because of guilt, Men became enemies of God and were subject to the justice of God 
and to the wrath of God. God's nature demands that he reject sin and that he punish wickedness. We've got to confess and admit whatever we get, whatever happens, we deserve it because all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The condition of the world before the fall and just after the fall is graphically portrayed in the book of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 29. For God said, see, I've given you every herb that yields seed which is on the earth and all every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. According to this, our diet was to be vegetarian. And the idea of killing an animal or consuming flesh of animals is not mentioned for mankind. Even after they had sinned, the thought of killing an animal did not even enter the mind of Adam and Eve. When they realized they were naked and had to make some clothing, they didn't make it out of skin or fur or the skin of an animal. All they could do was find leaves and make aprons for themselves. It says there, when the eyes of both of them were open, Genesis 3, 7, they knew that they were naked. They sewed thick leaves together and made themselves coverings. The King James Version says aprons. Now, one thing about a covering or clothing made from leaves is that they'd be very fragile and very temporary. How many of you know leaves dry up very quickly and they, 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 they disappear? And then they made aprons of leaves. And, and listen, an apron does just fine covering the front. Well, the apron doesn't help you at all from the back view. You're totally altogether exposed. And so the covering that they tried to find for their nakedness and their exposure was only partial and only temporary. It was not adequate. It was not lasting. And in Genesis 3:21, and for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. God saw that their covering, covering their clothing was inadequate. And God got little animals and got their skin and their wool and their, 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 their covering that the animals had survived and lived with and gave it to men and women as coats of skin to cover them. Now a coat more adequately covers the body than the skin uh, and the skin of an animal would be much more durable and much more lasting. But in order for the skin of an animal to be obtained, its blood has to be shed. It has to die. So from the time that man's sin, bloodshed became necessary and his guilt and shame could be covered. But notice also in Genesis 4 and 3, in the process of time, it came to pass that Adam's son, Cain, brought the fruit of the ground as an offering to the Lord. And Abel, his brother, also brought the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. Cain brought the vegetables that grew out of the ground, no bloodshed, no death, and presented them to the Lord as an offering. Abel took one of his flock, a sheep, and sacrificed that flock unto the Lord. And that means that the lamb had to die as a sacrifice. And the Lord recognized the blood 
of the sacrifice of an animal, not the offering of leaves, because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Are you all still with me? This implies that a righteously indignant God found only the sacrifice and blood of a living being to be acceptable as a substitute to make restitution for the sins of mankind. When the angel of death came through the land of Egypt in Exodus, the Lord said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And when the blood of the animal was sprinkled on the lintel and on the doorpost, he went on and passed over, and there was life in that house because a proper sacrifice had been made to the glory of God. And so, my brothers, my sisters, the clear testimony of the word of God is that only the blood of a substitute can gain access for a sinful man to a righteous God. Hebrews 9 and 22 says, under the law, almost everything is purified by means of blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That is not debatable. It is unavoidable. It cannot be questioned. Sin is such an abominable, repulsive phenomenon to our holy and righteous God that only a death, only a sacrifice of blood can atone for sin. Nothing but the blood can wash away my sins. Nothing but the blood can make us whole again. Thank God for the precious blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for each and every one of us. Come on, clap your hands and thank God for the blood. Now, having said all that, I want the media department bring up the tab bring up the tabernacle and the court of the tabernacle for me. Let me describe it as you see it. The tabernacle was actually a relatively small tent-type structure. There it is. It was 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high. The walls of the tabernacle, and that's the building on the back of that parcel of land that we're looking at. The walls of the tabernacle were made from acacia wood boards, and they were detachable. You could take them down and put them back up again. They were overlaid with gold. It was a portable structure, which could be relatively easily disassembled and relocated as the Israelites traveled from place to place. The ceiling of the tabernacle was a curtain of purple, blue, and scarlet linen. Angels were embroidered on the linen. Over the linen was a covering of material made from goat's hair, and over it was a covering of rams and coat skins sewn together. There was only one door into the tabernacle, and it entered into a room that was called the holy place. And behind the holy place was another room called the most holy place. It was set apart by a veil made from the same material as the ceiling of the tabernacle. Now, around the tabernacle, there was a fence. It was a court or a yard surrounding the tabernacle called the outer court. It had a parameter of 450 feet. There was one door into the outer court. That door would be the entrance gate that you see there. One door going into 
the tabernacle. The people of Israel could only go so far as the outer court. The priests could go only so far as the holy place, the first room of the tabernacle. And only the high priest could go into the most holy place, and that only once a year on the day of atonement. And the first item that you would see as you entered the entrance gate and into the outer court was the bronze altar, or the brazen altar. The altar was made from acacia wood covered with bronze, seven and a half feet square and four and one half feet high. Could you switch to the brazen altar alone, please, if you can find that. That should be the first item on your list. That's the bronze altar. Now, directly behind the brazen altar was the laver, or a basin where the priests had to wash themselves before performing any duties in the court or in the tabernacle. Inside the holy place was the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the seven-branched candlestick, and in the most holy place behind the veil was the Ark of the Covenant. But the location of the brazen altar, stay with the brazen altar, please. Go on back. That's the Ark of the Covenant there. There. All right. Let's give that brother a hand, our sister, whoever's up there. The location of the brazen altar which is the first item of furniture that you'll see upon entering the entrance gate, vividly informs us that entrance into the fellowship of God is by means of sacrifice. Would you tell your neighbor, entrance into fellowship with God is by means of sacrifice. Hallelujah. The individual worshiper, if he was not a priest, could go only to the brazen altar. The priest went on as the representative of the people. Now the brazen altar is a testimony of God's judgment and condemnation of sin. I said it's a testimony of God's judgment and condemnation of sin. Every day two lambs were sacrificed on the altar. One in the morning, another in the evening. Every Israelite had to give a half shekel to support the service of the tabernacle. And so every Israelite who came to the brazen altar had some money that he had placed in the purchase of the lambs that were sacrificed. And so he was a participant. He was a stakeholder. He was an investor in what had taken place. Part of him was on the altar through that lamb that was sacrificed in his place. The poor lamb had no choice. The lamb could not willingly give his life he had no choice, no ability to decide in the matter. Snatched away from his mother while she pleaded and called for him. She searches usually for days, uselessly for days, trying to find the little lamb that was taken away from her. But the poor lamb has been sacrificed on the altar for the sins of men, sin that the lamb did not commit, sins that the lamb could not commit. The worshiper would see the poor lamb's blood as it drained from his body. See the lamb butchered and placed on the burning altar. He would realize that his sins had made this necessary. What was happening was because of the sin of the worshiper. He was realized that the lamb was there in his place. The lamb was not dying for itself. It was dying for the sins of those who were making 
the sacrifice. This would create a vivid awareness of the terrible effect of sin and the awful price required to atone for their sins. When they saw the lamb dying, when they saw the lamb suffering, when they saw the fire consume the land of the sacrifice, they would understand this lamb is dying because of me. He's dying because of what I've done. He's dying because of my sinfulness. It's not merely enough for the worshiper to participate and offer the sacrifice. He had to identify with the sacrifice. That lamb is me. That lamb should be me. I should be there instead of the lamb. I've sinned, not the lamb. But the lamb is dying because of my sin. Lord, forgive me. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. Hallelujah. Everything in the tabernacle was a type and a shadow of things that were to come. And a shadow is merely a reflection. What happened on the brazen altar confirms that entrance into the things of God is available only through a sacrifice of blood. Hebrews 10 and 11 says, For every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sin for sacrifices forever, sat down at the right hand of God waiting until his enemies have made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected those who are sanctified. The lamb was but a type. The lamb was but a shadow. The brazen altar was but a type, but a shadow to let them know that this is a symbol of what is to come. The Bible says it is not possible that the blood of heifers and goats should take away sin. But listen, Jesus, the Son of God, said, Father, make me a body. I'll go down. I will die upon the cross. The cross is my brazen altar. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And Jesus hung on that cross in your place and mine. And John the Baptist said, he's the lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Come on, clap your hands. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The lamb had to be sacrificed twice a day, every day. But Jesus came, and with one sacrifice, he atoned for sin forever. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever your crime or your sin may have been, you can be washed in the blood of Jesus and made clean and whole forever. Hallelujah. We needed a substitute. We needed a substitute. Not a lamb, not a goat, not a bull, not a heifer. We needed a substitute. We needed one that was innocent in order to suffer the sins of another. You must be innocent of any sins yourself. If you're not suffering for others, then you're suffering for yourself. And there's sin in your life. You can't die for me because if you die, you've got to die for yourself. I need a substitute who's innocent. Tell your neighbor, I need a substitute who's innocent. I need a substitute that's related to me. A lamb cannot die for me because he's not related to me. If a man has sinned, a man needs to die. And it can't just be any old man. He has to be related. And then he has to be worthy. Not just any man. But Jesus was the only one who was really worthy to die for us. He was innocent. The Bible says he did no sin. 
No guile was found in his mouth. He was innocent. He said not a mumbling word. He died innocently and willingly. He was innocent, but then he was worthy. He was son of God, only begotten of the Father. Worthy is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He was worthy, but then he was related to us because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Jesus was worthy. He came all the way from heaven down. He walked upon the face of the earth and then he died on a cross for your sin and for my sin. The cross was his brazen altar. Nails were driven into his hands, into his feet. He was pierced in the side. Thorns were crushed into his skull. He was wounded for my transgressions, bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We ought to lift up our hands and give praise to God. When lambs couldn't do it, when goats couldn't do it, when bulls and heifers could not do it, Jesus, the Son of God, came all the way from heaven down and died for us. The priests had to go by the brazen altar on their way to the holy place. They had to go by the brazen altar as they approached God. But child of God, we don't have to go by a brazen altar, but we can go by the cross. In the cross of Christ I glory. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart was rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight and now I'm happy all the day. We go by the cross to get forgiveness. We go by the cross to repent. We go by the cross to get the help of God. We go by the cross to say, Lord, I'm sorry you had to die because of me. But Lord, because of the cross, forgive me. Have mercy on me. Lord, I recommit my life. Lord, I give my all. Lord, I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. I thank you for dying for my sins. Come on and praise him. Because of the cross, you have forgiveness. Because of the cross, you have everlasting life. Because of the cross, you can go all the way to the throne of grace. For we have not a high priest who cannot be touched by the feeling of our infirmities, but he was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, we can come boldly, boldly to the throne of grace and find mercy and grace to help in the time of need. Stand up, everybody, and give praise to the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the type. Thank you for the shadow. Thank you for the brazen altar. 
thank you for the blood of the lamb, the blood of the goat, the blood of the bullock. Lord, by looking at them, we can see what you've done, but you offered a price much greater than the blood of the lamb. The blood of Jesus shall make us and wash us from every one of our sins. Come on and praise him. Praise him. Glory. 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 Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We look at the cross and we find out we can't be good enough. We can't be righteous enough. We can't be holy enough to deserve the grace of God. But because of the cross, because of Jesus who died for us, we can go into the holy place. We can go into the most holy place. We can have mercy and we can have help. Come boldly to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy and grace to help in the time of need. And then finally, Romans 5 and verse 6, uh, verse 8, says that God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God gave us a demonstration that while we were sinners, while we were lost, Jesus demonstrated the love of God. Go ahead, drive nails into my hands. Drive nails into my feet. Drive thorns into my skull. Drive a spear into my side. I love you enough to die for you. That's a demonstration of my love. Since God demonstrated, then we ought to give God a demonstration. We ought to demonstrate our praise. Demonstrate our worship. Demonstrate our faithfulness. Demonstrate our commitment. Lord, because I love you, I'll praise you. I'll praise you. I'll praise you. I'll come into the house of the Lord. I'll give you praise. As a matter of fact, I'll offer the sacrifice of praise. There is such a thing as a sacrifice of praise. When I think of the goodness of Jesus, when I think of the goodness of Jesus and all he has done for me, my soul cries out, hallelujah, oh, hallelujah, glory. Thank the Lord, thank the Lord, thank the Lord for saving me. Thank the Lord for mercy. Thank the Lord for grace. Thank the Lord for life. Thank the Lord for salvation. Thank him for power. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. Praise the Lord. Glory. Open your mouth and praise him. Praise him. Praise him. Hallelujah. Glory. I don't know about you, but I'm so glad. I'm so glad 
I'm so glad that the Lord saved me. I'm so glad, I'm so glad that he stayed on that cross just for me, that I might have life, have it more abundantly. I don't know about you, but I'm going to praise him. Tell your neighbor, neighbor, I don't know about you, but I'm going to praise Praise him, praise him, praise him. Praise him, praise him. Because of the blood, because of the cross, because of his sacrifice, I'm here today. I would not be here were it not for the blood. But thank God for the blood of Jesus. Thank God for eternal life. Thank God for salvation. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. says the Lord go by the bronze altar go by the altar of sacrifice you can't get to me without going by there blood of the sacrifice and my brother you can't get to God without coming to Jesus anybody who would come to the Father got to come by me Jesus said I'm the way I'm the truth I'm the light I'm the door to the sheepfold. You can't get in there without coming by Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Are your sins forgiven? Do you believe that he's the son of God, that he died for your sins? Do you believe that Jesus arose from the dead, that he's alive right now? Anybody who can conquer death, anybody who defeats death, I believe anything he says. Anybody who can overrule death, I want him to be my Lord, be my Savior. Or anybody say, well, I don't understand this, I don't understand that. I don't have to understand it. All I need to know is that Jesus said. And if Jesus said it, I believe it. And that settles it. Come on, clap your hands and give praise to the Lord. I want to pray for somebody who is not saved. But I will pray for you right where you are, right where you stand 
Every sin you've ever committed can be forgiven. Jesus can become the Lord of your life and you'll never be the same again. Your life will be changed. Jesus said, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. I have said, confess with your mouth, Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, and you shall be saved. The Bible says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to pray for you. If you've not accepted Jesus, if you're not saved, this is your time. I'll pray for you right there, right where you are. All I need you to do is lift up your hand as your way of saying, preacher, pray for me. I want that Jesus, without whom I cannot come before God in mercy and forgiveness. I want him in my life. I want to give my heart and my life and my soul to Jesus. If that's you, lift up that hand, hold it high. I want to be saved. I want to be saved. I want my sins forgiven. I don't want to go to hell. I want to hear God say, well done. That hand is lifted. Dear Lord, I pray for every lifted up hand. I pray, dear Lord, for those who have come into this house not knowing you. You brought them here, dear Lord, because you love them. You brought them here because you want to save them. You brought them here, dear Lord, because this is the time for the changing of their life by the power of Almighty God. Thank you, Lord, that you let them live to this day. Now save them. Forgive them. Have mercy on them. Draw them to yourself. Let them never again be the same. Everybody say this prayer after me, please. Dear Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. Please forgive me for the wrong I've done and the wrong I have been. I want to be saved. I want to be saved. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he died for me. I believe he arose from the dead. I accept Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. And I thank you, Lord. I'm saved. I thank you, Lord. I'm delivered. I thank you, Lord. I am forgiven. Come on, give praise to God. Praise him, praise him. Praise him. Praise him. Praise him.